Greetings, I'm Tyler and this is the Socialized Recluse. Inactive no more for the second time. My guest this episode is Abbott Kaler, the New York Times bestselling author who, as Karen Abbott, has written some of my favorite works of narrative nonfiction from the last decade. Sin in the Second City, American Rose, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, and The Ghosts of Eden Park. So we discuss those, we discuss how she wrote them, we discuss what makes a story just one that she can't let go of. But we also talk about her upcoming, two upcoming new books, um, the first is a, another narrative nonfiction sojourn into the insanity that was the Galapagos Islands in Then Came the Devil. And the second is her debut novel, Where You End. And so we talk about not only the switch to fiction and the, the pluses, the minuses, the differences, the none of the above, but we also talk about how these two books will be the first time that she's been published under her own name and answer the question, what took so long? As ever, if you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise at me, my email is TWW at parentheticalrecluse.com, and you can check out earlier episodes of this show at parentheticalrecluse.com slash TSRpod. And now, here's my chat with Abbott. I guess I'm going to start, though, with some congratulations. Um, I've been looking forward to reading your novel since you told me about it and you sold it. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you very much. And, you know, I was I was sold as soon as I heard Donna Tart meets David Lynch. That was some that was some. Oh, there's the dogs already. We just got started. <laughs> just we'll just roll. Dogs with always have something to add to the conversation. So yeah, well, don't worry about the dogs. Yeah. Yeah. They they are very conversant. So anyhow, speaking of my own David Lynch life, um, yeah, so no, I've been looking forward to this. So is is this, was it something like a career milestone for you that you had been working towards, or was it like a lockdown project that bore fruit? Was it a all the above, you know? Well, all of the above, I guess. I, you know, when I was a kid and I, and I quote unquote wrote books, it was always fiction you know i would write i would write fanciful stories about murderous witches and and um various nefarious characters and um staple them together and draw a cover and sell my books you know to my mom (laughs) for for a quarter she was like my best my best customer uh and you know so and then i sort of fell into journalism kind of accidentally and Mm -hmm. um and then that became the you know, just sort of where I became comfortable and settled in for a few years. And, uh, you know, that extended into nonfiction, you know, book length narrative nonfiction. And, um, but always in the back of my mind, I, you know, always collecting um, stories that could possibly be uh, turned into nonfiction books, I would come across really fascinating people or events. And I'd say, wow, I, I, this is really interesting, but there's not enough na- source material here to make it a, a full length book. Um, but wow, it's a great story. And could I write this as a novel? You know, um, mm-hmm. it's not going to work as nonfiction, but it could be really interesting as fiction. And, um, so I have an entire folder of those things. Uh, and, you know, during quarantine when I wasn't, you know, going out for cocktails to two or three times a week, um, 
I just started, you know, working on it. Uh, and um, it became a fun little thing to play with in between researching my nonfiction book, the Galapagos book, uh, Then Came the Devil, which is due in a year now. Okay. Um, and so it just, and, you know, I, uh, I, I was lucky enough to have a lot of novelist friends who have always read my nonfiction and, and uh, sort of helped me, you know, uh, if I ever had any sort of like long information dumps, as they would call them, like they would actually draw steaming piles of poo in the margins <laughs> of my uh, manuscripts just to signal that there was an information dump. Um, so things like that. Uh, and I was lucky enough that they were willing to read my my attempts at fiction, you know, when I finally put my mind to it and said, I'm going to give this a shot. Well, that was actually one of my questions for you was when I I know when I switched and I, I mean, I'm I'm barely little leagues here but when i switched over primarily to fiction that for me coming from documentary film and from nonfiction, i always sort of felt like i had to make a documentary of a fiction world before i could create in it does that yeah yeah is it was it kind of the same thing for you i mean what it sounds like your information dumps were were part of it but was it was it more or less difficult for you to make a fictional world convincing to yourself? Um, well, in a way, it was it was a lot more difficult. You know, for one thing, um, it's not possible to write bad fiction, or excuse me, to ba write bad dialogue in nonfiction. You know, True. the, the uh, dialogue is all in the historical record and the sources. Um, and you can't, it's impossible to write. If, if you're writing bad dialogue and nonfiction, it's because this, the people were not speaking um, in a clear <laughs> in a clear manner or they weren't funny or whatever. Uh, you know, the material yeah. sort of does so much of the work for you. Um, and so in fiction, you know, it was it, it was a kind of a question I asked myself when I started was starting out with it is, am I going to be paralyzed by all of this freedom or am I going to be liberated by all this freedom? And I think it was a little bit of both. You know, until especially until I found my footing, um, I it's so much easier to second guess yourself in fiction because it's it's really coming. Even if it's based on a true story or inspired by a true story, as mine is, um, it's still coming really from your your own observations and your own ideas and your own you know whatever you think uh, the story is that you're trying to tell. It's all sort of very internal in a way that nonfiction isn't. Um, so, so I think it was harder in a lot of ways. Maybe hopefully it'll get easier. What, what you, you did say you, you, you found your footing. What helped you to find your footing? Well, I, I had some good readers who, um, you know, would read my first 40,000 words and told me to throw it out, which I happily did. Um, you know, they read the next 20,000 words, told me to throw it out, which I happily did. So people, you know, finding people who are better at, at what you're trying to do than you are. Um, these were established novelists. I, I should just give them shout outs. Jocelyn Jackson, uh, who um, writes really, really fantastic Southern Gothic uh, thrillers and fiction and um, really, uh, really great voice. And Lydia Netzer, who has uh, written a couple of really interesting and innovative books, too. Um, they were my first readers for this and and uh, were not afraid to tell me what I was going horribly awry. When it comes to, I mean, I always say like, you know, the, the, the devil's in the details in fiction and were there, were there different, did you have like coming from nonfiction, did you have sort of different criterion for that level of detail, that level of accuracy and, you know, before you were able to move through something? Well, I, I do set my, my novelist in Philadelphia where I'm from, which I think a lot of at least beginning novelists do that. They, they pick a place they're familiar with and, and, um, 
And uh, it, it just so happened that I thought the story worked there anyway. Because right. um, the story is from it's yeah. England, right? Was the original story? Yes, yeah. the original story was in England. Um, maybe I should just give an overview of the of the original yeah, sure. story. It was that these two um, British brothers, twin brothers, um, had an interesting experience, I guess, quite harrowing experience. One of them was injured severely in a motorcycle accident uh, when they were 18 years old. He went into a coma when he awoke. Um, you know, he he had a really bizarre uh, kind of amnesia where the only thing he recognized was his twin brother's name and face. He didn't remember any of their history, didn't remember any other person in their lives. He didn't remember anything about their their lives together. It was just his brother's face and name. And so the uh, brother who was not injured um, took it upon himself to rewrite their entire history um, and sort of created a more palatable childhood. Um, so I sort of take that concept and I make my, my protagonists are women, uh, they're twins, uh, they're a little bit older and, um, I, I, I take it a little bit further. There is, there is an amnesia situation, um, and the twin rewrites their history in such a drastic way that it actually threatens their present and their future. Um, and so as the, as the injured twin is trying to figure out, you know, who am I and where have I been and what have I done in my life? And, you know, what is my, what is my history up until this point? Um, as she starts to unravel the clues, uh, things just get, you know, more dangerous and, um, and the other twin is scrambling to sort of save them. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game between these two sisters. Um, one of them trying to figure out the truth, but still wanting to trust that her sister is telling her the truth, but having doubts. And the other one really trying to cover her tracks, but also, you know, um, make sure that her twin is, is happy and safe. And uh, there weren't really any nefarious uh, reasons for her lying. It was um, all what she believed to be in the best interest of them both. So, um, but well, things get a little, <laughs> a little dicey to yeah, say the least. Yeah, all good villains believe they're right. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that's always you know drawn me to your work and how you approach and I'm switching gears here to nonfiction and your approach to history and you know storytelling in general is that you really base it in people not so much in the event yeah, that the, yeah. the event is is really a well like a very very well drawn setting for these just crazy characters that you know you know the surreality of reality so to speak and I mean, has that always sort of been a conscious effort on your part, or was that just something that has evolved? Uh, no, I'm always drawn to character. You know, my first book, not well, my first book and my first nonfiction books, and in the Second City, um, uh, was sort of uh, I came upon it accidentally. It was born of a story that my grandmother used to tell me about um, her mother and her mother's sister who emigrated from Slovenia uh, in 1905, and the sister went to Chicago and was never heard from again. Mm -hmm. And so I was intrigued and haunted by this bit of family lore. And I began looking into, you know, what was going on in Chicago in 1905. Um, and instead of finding out anything about my missing ancestor, I found out about these two fantastic sisters named Minna and Ada Everlay, who happened to operate the most lavish brothel in the entire world in Chicago at that point. Um, where all kinds of interesting traditions began, including uh, the tradition of drinking champagne from a lady's shoe. Uh, and I forgot all about my missing ancestor and was much more fascinated by these characters. Yeah, forget um, the ancestors. And how, exactly. <laughs> so I, I think so. So it's, it's, you know, interesting characters tend to have an interesting story. 
So I, I sort of, um, you know, follow, always look to the person. And, and um, I also think that it's very telling when, when the characters have a bit of mystery around them. You know, I think what people say, um, it, what people don't say is just as important and just as telling as what they do say. Mm-hmm. And um, these sisters were very coy and very particular about what they put out into the world. And I, I thought that was fascinating, especially mm-hmm. for um, women who were being, uh, you know, entrepreneurs during this time period. They really had to write the rule book. And, and it was just sort of like a, a, a really interesting case study. Well, one of the, I, had, I had told you that one of the things that I, I, I had just not too long ago finally read American Rose. And one of the things I really appreciate about that was just the clearly tender relationship you had with June. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, you know, you developed that. Sure. So so June, of course, is June Havoc, sister of the famous burlesque performer, author slash actress slash just general. General <laughs> multi-hyphenate. Legend. Yes. Yeah. Gypsy Rose Lee. Um, and and I, I was actually the last journalist to speak with June before she passed away. And I was lucky to um, find her longtime caretaker, Tana, uh, who sadly passed away shortly after June passed away. But but Tana was kind enough to sort of usher me into June's world and introduce me. Um, and June at this time was living at this really lovely farmhouse up in Connecticut. And she was in her 90s at the time, I believe 93 or 4, and I would go into her room, and she was bedridden, you know, and I, I imagined, I tried to put myself in her shoes and think, what a what a hardship it must be, even being in your 90s, um, to have been such a, a, a gorgeous dancer, um, somebody who's, you know, learned their livelihood and had all of their, most of their joy in their life came from dancing on a stage, uh, and she was bedridden, you know, she couldn't yeah. get up, she couldn't walk. Um, but she had her, her white hair up in pigtails. She had the most beautiful skin. Her skin was flawless, absolutely flawless. Um, and you, she had this, you know, she was eating cookies and milk. Um, and, and you sort of, you know, walk in there and approach her and you think you're going to come across this sweet little demure lady. Um, but she is for, she was ferocious. Um, I'm speaking her in this first in the present tense. Cause I feel like her, <laughs> she's still here. She was ferocious. Um, and you just had the impression that at any moment she might leap up from her bed and, and, you know, clutch you by the throat and just squeeze the life out of you. I mean, she had that force. Um, and you know, if it was, it, you know, and she would tell me a story about Gypsy and she would tell something about her life and I'd get some great material. And then she would sit back in her bed and just say, what else? You know, she had this really great throaty voice and she'd be like, what else? Um, and it was, she was just kind of general, generally terrifying, but I adored her. And I, I thought if, if June is terrifying, I can only imagine yeah. how terrifying Gypsy Rosalie was. Now, now that woman was a true force of nature. So, I mean, well, I guess so long as you don't ask me what else in this interview we'll be doing fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have her voice. I wish I did. It oh, sort well, of yeah. makes makes people sit down and shut up. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, when you you had, I, I guess we talked in September or whenever it was, but the, you were kind of staring down the barrel of the of a what is a 200-page outline for the next nonfiction yes. book. Yes, which um, I'm still working on. And, and I mean, I <laughs> I use the the term process very loosely here because I think process kind of sounds too controlled. Um, 
it, what is the outlining process for you? And I guess, does the outline function as sort of a total guide for you? Is it, or is it a place that you can, can return to and sort of riff off of? Um, that's a good question. I, I, this is the first time I'm doing something this extensive. Okay. Uh, I did a, I, I did a very extensive outline for the Ghost of Eden Park, mm-hmm. but it was mostly an, uh, an outline of just the information I gleaned from the trial transcript. Okay. This is an outline encompassing all of the sources. And I'm really trying to make it a blueprint for the book so that if, when I send it to my editor, which I'm planning to do, um, she can read along and pretty much see how the book will, will, you know, play out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 it's a, it's kind of a complicated story. There's many bizarre twists and turns. Um, some of it is almost unbelievable <laughs> in the literal sense. Um, and I, I just, uh, and so, um, I really thought it would be a good idea to have a play by play so that, that I can, you know, try to arrange for maximum impact. You know, when yeah. the weirdness comes up, I really want the weirdness to hit. I've got to use the weirdness sparingly or, <laughs> or else the whole thing is going to be sort of oversaturated by weirdness. And um, maybe that's not a bad thing, but, but yeah, I, 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 I don't know why yeah. that is a bad thing. To be <laughs> yeah. And I think I'm just doing this outline so that the writing process is going to go a lot quicker. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'll have all of the sources in one place. I'm really keeping meticulous notes in terms of what's coming from which source so that I'm not in a mad scramble as I sometimes am at the end of a, a long manuscript where I'm like, I know, <laughs> I know I have a source for this. I know I read it. I did not make this up. I've got to find it. <laughs> so did, did you take a, I mean, did you similarly outline the novel or was it just sort of a winging it or somewhere in between? You know, I, I did outline the novel because okay. I don't I don't know any better. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Yeah. You know, I you know, and I, I my all my novelist friends say you're either an outliner or you're a pantser, meaning the seat of your pants. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I might try it a different way for the next one, um, depending on which I have a couple ideas, depending on which one I, I really decide to pursue. But um, um, I like the idea of, of starting with a general idea and a character and just seeing where she might take me. Um, but I'm not, yeah. I'm not quite sure yet, but I did outline the first one and, um, and I had to, of course, <laughs> rewrite the outline several times because the story kept changing and my ideas kept changing. So you said the first one, how many are we talking here? Um, well, I, it's a, I told, I have a two book deal okay. or two novels, so I've, I'm definitely going to have to write another one. So the, cur- um, the current one is when I have it written down here, when you, where you end. Yes, that's the working title. That's the work. My original title was um, "What Your Right Hand Has Done," but too many people told me it sounded like masturbation. So, yeah, I. <laughs> so I I um, I scrapped that. <laughs> Happy to go back to it if anyone, because some people were like, "Oh, I didn't think of that," but now that you mentioned it, yeah, and other people were like, "No, I don't get that at all. Like you're just weird for thinking that." Uh, yeah. So I'm not quite sure. It it's like it, it had a very specific biblical connotation. I I put the Bible verse in the beginning of the book. Um, but the but the um so the title right now is where you end, which kind of really fits the story as well because I'm talking about really really close identical twins. So it's kind of like where you know where does she end, where you end, and where I begin. So the blurring and of the also lines and all of that. Yeah, and also there's some murder. So literal well, where you end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you had said that, you know, you just you, you just added some murder to it was your, your main. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I always add murder. I'm not interested in a book if there's not a murder in it, pretty much. 
I, I will I will make sure to make a note of that. <laughs> um, so will it will the novel or then came the devil come first? I don't know. I'm guessing the novel okay. because because I was yeah. this this either one whichever one comes first will be your first as Abbot Kaler. Yes, and yes. so I mean, you change, you you're changing your name. My name correctly. Excuse yeah. me. <laughs> I said thanks for pronouncing Kaler correctly. Oh, that was sure. Nice. Um, yeah. So you ch- it was what six, seven years ago you changed your name. Yes, I changed it in two thousand, beginning of two thousand fifteen. Yeah. So I mean, I don't want to frame it indelicately, but what took so long to, you know, finally get to write under your own name? Well, I I tried to ask my publishers. They said no um, for good reason. I mean, I have built up a pretty long career as Karen Abbott mm-hmm. and. Um, and, uh, you know, understandably, they, they wanted to, you know, optimize whatever readership I had built and try to make sure they knew I have a new book coming out under under that name. And, you know, sometimes I um, I contemplate keeping it for nonfiction just because <laughs> the, the sort of logistical um, realities of it. You know, I can't have my nonfiction on two different shelves. Um, well, yeah, well, I mean, are are they is is there consideration of you know moving your your nonfiction you know, gonna, over the new name? No, okay. no, okay. that's that's not going to happen. I okay. mean, I yeah, that's not going to happen. What's done is done, I think. Yeah. But um, but it's a conversation I'll have with them, you know, with Crown and Random House when the time comes, and um, you know, it's it's fine. Uh, it's just um. The changing the name was more of a personal choice that just, you know, eventually would spill over into my professional life. So it's just a matter of, I guess, how and exactly, you know, how it's when and how it's done. I suppose being declared dead by Google was a good. Yes. Push, push <laughs> I, I, only th- I've, yeah. I've added a W to my name. And, you know, most of the other Tyler's Weaver have been like arrested for meth labs and stuff so but i mean oh that's so funny yeah oh yeah there there's like this karate kid tyler weaver who'd been on oprah so i knew i was screwed and oh no yeah and it's like he was some 10 year old black belt i was like he could kick my ass too so i was like (laughs) well it's not so bad if you conflated with him if you have any enemies they might be like oh i actually i actually did get an email from somebody asking me to come speak at their karate tournament and I'm like, well, I'm happy to come talk about narrative and <laughs> fiction to you guys. And I'm sure we can find cool stuff to talk about, but the wrong guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess this is appropriate since your book's set in the Galapagos. I know that for me, my, and again, I'm barely little leagues here, but I know that my older books, like the book on comics and all of that stuff, I feel like I uh, they were written by another person um, you know, 10 years ago. Do you feel the same way with your stuff or does the name change make it ex- especially so, or is there no difference at all? No, I think, um, God, who is it? One of my favorite writers in the world, Pete Dexter, uh, the novelist Pete Dexter uh, says something, you know, everybody has a needle and the needle, you know, it, it usually lands in a similar place on the record you know when you drop everybody's a needle with the drops and it lands pretty much in the same place you know the stories are are different from book to book but but the your you know the kernel of interest the the sort of the thing that gets you going your 
you know, that your driving pursuit of, of why you want to write and what you're interested in writing about pretty much stays the same, I think. Yeah. Um, I think if somebody read my books, they would, um, all in a row, they would see, um, you know, um, see a sort of trajectory that would, would make some sense. Um, and, and it's funny because, you know, novels are obviously very personal to the, to the writer, um, because it's, but I think that nonfiction also says something about, about the author, you know, what you choose, how you choose to tell these stories, um, the sort of the characters you keep gravitating to the themes are, are pretty much recurring. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, that nonfiction can say just as much about an author as, as, uh, as fiction does. And, um. And so now I, I think that there's sort of a, a natural progression and um, I'm always going to be drawn to the seamy underbelly of American life and, and our dark impulses and, and, you know, sort of the places that we're afraid to go to and what happens when we actually put ourselves there. You know, those are the things that interest me. That was actually going to be one of my questions here, though, is we're actually heading towards the end here. But um, what does a story need to grab you? What do you look for? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I look for somebody who, um, especially when I'm writing history, you know, taking it back to my nonfiction, to female characters in particular who dare to defy conventions, um, who did not, who, you know, sort of challenged social mores of their day. Um, you know, all of the characters I've written about in fiction were, were women whose lives I wish I had lived. You know, yeah. I, I, they're much more braver than I am and, um, and more forward than I am and sort of more willing to put themselves out there and courageous and daring and bold and brazen. And I wish I could live their lives, but writing about them is the next best thing. So I kind of look for people who, whose lives I wish I could have lived. Um, and that includes George Remus, uh, even though he, he is a man, I just thought he was so audacious and fascinating. And, you know, here is a true rags to riches American dream story. And I, I think his story really is one of the a, a quintessential American tale. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, I found him particularly fascinating from beginning to end. Yeah, I mean, he was a, he was a fascinating character. That that book was just filled with him. I mean, that and you know, Ohio. yes, I, it was definitely the strangest book. Um, I I think that then came the devil is going to be stranger, but Remus really is giving me a you know run for the money. Here. I was going to say so. you were talking earlier about you know you didn't worried about everything being weird in the then came the devil. I, everything was pretty weird in <laughs> Ghost of Eden Park, and I'm from Ohio, reading a story yeah. about Ohio, and I can say it was weird. You know, so that, good. I take that as a compliment. You, you should, you. because there's a lot of there's a lot of weird shit in Ohio. That that was. <laughs> I think Ohio and and Illinois are the two most bizarre states. New York, New York is expected to be weird. Yeah. So it it doesn't count as much as Ohio and Illinois. Ohio is kind of like you know that that middle point between the two of them, and you know the 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 you know going back and forth between, and it's just. Sort of the weird of both Illinois and New York sort of collide in Chicago, in Ohio. Yeah, yeah, definitely, I agree. And it's you know, it, you know the the surreal hell of Ohio, as I call it. But yeah, that's that's a conversation for another time. Uh, <laughs> uh, were there any of your previous books that you thought you were just going to give up on that you couldn't find the hook? 
Um, let's see. Oh, there's plenty of ideas I've I've considered and are either discarded or on the back burner for maybe another time. Well, okay, um, let, let's go on that. I mean, you don't have to name anything specific, obviously, but I mean, what what caused it to go onto the back burner? Uh let's see. I, I I guess when you're writing nonfiction and you sit there and you know, you know what, I'm going to be living with this thing for at least three or four years, yeah. and I better wake up every day excited to sit at my computer and spend all of my long, long hours with these people. And they're going to be talking to me in my head. And do I want these dead people in my head? Do I want to hear what they're saying for four years? <laughs> um, you know, writing is, as you know, is a very solitary pursuit. And yeah. you need you need to like to communicate with your characters, whether they're figments yeah. of your imagination or rather they're dead people, you know, who, who you're trying to bring back to some kind of life on the page. Uh, you really want to, you don't have to like them, but you need to find them interesting. Um, and, and so I really sit and, and think about that when I'm, when I'm picking a book and, and take a long time going through the primary source material and, and, you know, detail is the key in narrative nonfiction. Detail is what makes a story. And if I, if they have the right level of detail, if there's enough primary source material, and if I like the, <laughs> if I like that primary source material in some way, um, then there's a good chance that I would move ahead with that story. Okay. But if there's just something that's just not clicking, you'll just, you know, say, okay, well, yeah, yeah, we'll check know, it another I, time. Yeah. Or something else is for maybe more interesting at that particular point in time. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe the other thing will sort of move to the forefront at another point in time. You know, you, you always, you know, kind of gauge the, the mood a little bit too, even though you're writing a book that's not going to be published in four or so years. Um, you know, you really just try to say, well, what are, what are people going to be interested in and what, what are people going to want to think about? And, and what, fa what, what, what'll fascinate you for four years too? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's key. I mean, nobody, <laughs> nobody cares about your, what you're writing as much as you do. So you better be really interested in what you're doing for four years because well, I, nobody I, else really cares. I always like the, the, something Donna Tartt said, which is no fun for the writer, no fun for the reader. Yeah, yeah, she's a very concise way to put it. She's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so, novel sold, fifth work of nonfiction on the way is is sort of the fiction nonfiction back and forth. The plan moving forward. Is there a plan? Well, I think I'm um, I'm very excited to start writing. Then came the devil because I think it's just going to be a an incredible. It's just a, such an incredible nonfiction story. Um, you know, I fought to have this accepted as a, as a book for like probably seven years or so. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, what, what and was you know, the, publishers. What was the resistance? Well, publishers are reluctant, it, it seems. And I it doesn't quite make sense to me. But, you know, they, they want nonfiction has to take place in America. Yeah. Um, Americans want to read about America. And I, I just, you know when you look at all of the fiction that, that happens around the world and in Europe and all the various exotic settings that people place novels, set novels in, um, I don't understand why that, that, you know, that openness and that doesn't extend to nonfiction. So, huh. um, yeah. And there are plenty of American characters in this book. Sure. Um, it's just not set on the, it's not set on the, in the States. So I think that was the initial resistance, but um, I, I kept rewriting my proposal, and eventually, um, the you know I was able to I was able to get it get it going. So, 
so but but is sort of back and forth the the planners that- oh yeah i i think that um often once i finish my edits for where you end which i've not gotten yet which i'm kind of terrified to get <laughs> uh <laughs> uh i'll i'll see what what that's about uh you know i'll finish those i'll write um galapagos and then i'm gonna start ahead on another novel since that's you know what's that's the, the next thing that I'm contractually obligated to do and what I want to do anyway. I'm not saying I'll never do nonfiction again, you know, if the right, but it's nice to have the option to keep writing fiction yeah. until the right nonfiction story really grabs me. I, you know, it's, I'm, I'm kind of selective in terms of picking nonfiction, uh, you know, subjects and, you know, they, they don't grow on trees. <laughs> They're really, really hard to find. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, it takes time. It's uh, if my friend, Eric Larson, who I'm sure your listeners uh, have read and enjoy. Um, my three he listeners. Calls it yes. like, uh, <laughs> well, he always said, you know, we, talk, we laugh about the period of trying to find a next book. And it's, it's just like the long, dark, dark period. Yes. Um, you know, it's just a, it's kind of like a very demoralizing but also very, uh, very stressful situation when you're searching around for your next book. I, I know when I talked with Wallace Strobe, he he talked about like, you know, just that urge to start on something new and all the false starts he had between the last book and then Heaven can, Heaven's a Lie. That, and we talked yeah. about that, that it's just this void that, yeah, you just don't know what to do with yourself until you find it. And yeah. You, you kind of grab yeah. at everything. Oh, you do. You grab at everything. Everything sounds like a great idea. You frantically write a few pages and then you're like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Yeah. Um, and that happens a lot. So. Yeah. Um, what do people, when they think about history, get wrong about it? Oh, I think that, you know, that history is boring. Yeah. You know, I, I think that the way that we're taught history, or at least the way I was taught history, was was just the completely wrong approach. It's not mm-hmm. this dull recitation of facts and events. And, you know, it, it's there were people, there were blood, there were sweat, there were tears, there were emotions, there was hubris, uh, there was anger, there was sex. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of, you know, it, you can, history was a soap opera. It is a soap opera. There's always a soap opera happening. Um, and, yeah. and it's sort of just in the way it, you, you have to treat history as you would treat any other storytelling. Um, it's, it's just immensely and endlessly fascinating. And, and I think that, you know, too many people will just write it off as boring because of the way it's traditionally been presented. I always say that my interest in history comes in spite of my education, not because of it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I can, I can remember, I mean, I've, I've told you about my, my former employee, but one of the times that I was at a, at a. I had to travel. I was in walking around Pittsburgh with a with a bunch of authors, and one of them kept looking down at the sidewalk. And I asked him, "I said, so what?" He's like, "I'm looking at all the plaques." And I said, "Okay." He said, "I want to know whose blood I'm walking on." Interesting. And I was like, "Well, that pretty much sums up history right there for me." Yeah, it really does. It really does. Yeah. So now I always catch myself looking at plaques and stuff, and, and always thinking of that one. But okay, no, that's a, it's no, oh, go ahead. Sorry, no, no, it's a good thought. And and now every time I look at a plaque, I will be, <laughs> I'll be think I'll think of it the same way. Yeah, it, well, you're you're either welcome or I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I'll, I will be grateful. Okay, well, we'll we'll see. Let me know about see what you say later about that. But um, so final question for you: Where can people find you and connect with you? 
Um, my website right now is um, abbotkaler.com, A-B-B-O-T-T-K-A-H-L-E-R.com. Um, my email's on there, but my email is abbotauthor at gmail.com. Uh, love to hear from readers, um, aspiring writers, anyone. It's it's one of the joys of doing this work. It's just connecting with people who have similar, similar interests. And um, I always love hearing from people. So I guess that is it. So thank you very much. Well, thank for, you very much, for Tyler. Do, for doing this. Yeah. And I... We'll definitely let you know if this recorded or not. It, <laughs> yeah, please keep me posted. The, the, I, button fingers is, crossed. the button is on. If not, I'll just do a solo reenactment of this, you know. Think, <laughs> yes, I expect you to go on the road on your one-man show and reenact our conversation. Yes, so. yes. So many thanks to Abbott for the conversation and for um, indulging my zoo, my canine zoo that was circling about the entire time uh it was great to finally get a chance to chat with you and to learn about your work and i, I cannot wait for the novel i mean donna tart meets david lynch i mean you can't pass that up so if you want to connect with abbott you can do so at her website abbottkaler.com her email is abbottauthor at gmail.com and um yeah the rest of them you can check out down below in the, in the show notes um, but if you do go to her site there is a pro- prologue for or a version of a prologue for then came the devil which is you should really check out um so yes so that is it again inactive no more for the second time and hopefully I get back into a back into a into a routine the next couple weeks or so. So as ever, if you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise at me, my email is TWW at parentheticalrecluse.com. And you can check out earlier episodes of the show at parentheticalrecluse.com slash TSR pod. And you can also subscribe to future episodes via RSS, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. See you next time.